Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. If you know me, you know how obsessed I am with live performance. To me, nothing replaces being in a theater and the lights going down and the orchestra starts to play and that first moment of magic. And I know the way I feel about theater, some people feel about sports or opera or dance or comedy or food. And what if there was a place that you could go and find out which live events are going on near you that night, and then for a discount price, you can get off your couch, put down that clicker, and experience the magic that is live performance. Well, there is a place, goldstar.com. You just go to that website, you type in your city, and every amazing live event will be listed at discount prices. Theater, dance, comedy, film, food, concerts, sports. No more staying home. You are going to go out and build memories and experiences that expand your mind and heart through live performance with goldstar.com. Goldstar is in 26 cities around the country with over 8 million members already signed up to find out what event is going on near you. So go to goldstar.com. Get out of your house and build memories that are magic for you and your family. Expand your mind, expand your hearts. Go see live performance by using goldstar.com. Tell them Alana sent you. Hey, I heard you need an inspiration. He's Alana and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day. Every little thing's gonna be a-okay. Hey, I am so excited to share some news with you guys. For the last few months, I've been working on another project that I've been calling Little Known Facts 2.0, Stage Network, an incredible new streaming platform which promises to be Netflix for theater lovers, asked me to do Little Known Facts as a filmed series, a talk show, as it were, in front of cameras. And I really thought about it for a long time because the thing that's made this podcast so special is that all of my guests have been able to share deep, intimate truths about their lives because we are in this tiny, comforting, confessional that is the podcast booth. And I really had to think hard, could I still deliver the same kind of intimate, raw, hilarious, and unique interviews if cameras were involved? But I think I figured it out. I created a really beautiful set uh, with very little technology around to distract me or my guest. And somehow through... um, The miracle that is uh, modern technology where cameras can be really far away and capture really intimate moments at the same time, we've done it. And I'm so grateful to Stage Network for allowing me to make my dream of sharing incredible friends with you in this whole new way. So I shot six episodes. The first one 
uh, is with Ben Platt. Other guests include Celia Keenan-Bolger, Zachary Quinto, George Salazar, Nikki M. James, John Slattery, and on and on and on. And I cannot tell you how thrilled I am to share them with you. Stage Network really is an amazing place. Not only is it filled with incredible original content, uh, it has licensed so much theater-related content, documentaries and films and all sorts of incredible programming. I feel like I dreamed up a network and someone else created it, and here it is. And the fact that I'm involved in even a small way with this incredible, incredible network is just truly an honor. So to that end, uh, to watch all of the content, including Little Known Facts, the series, go to watchstage.com. You can start your free trial today, but you guys, it is only $4 a month if you sign up in earnest. That is nothing when you think of what you're going to get for it. I can't believe this place exists. I can't believe Little Known Facts is a film series. I will continue to do my podcast every week for you, but it is really exciting to go on this whole new adventure with you. So go to watchstage.com. That's watch, W-A-T-C-H, stage.com. Enjoy, and I hope you like it. Little known fact about my guest today. When he was a young man, a production of Hair was happening in Toronto. That production changed his life, and he has been directing and producing theater for decades. If you've seen a show on Broadway, he has probably directed it. His name is Des Mackinoff, and I'm so pleased to have him here on the podcast. Hey, everybody. My guest today is the two-time Tony Award-winning director, Des Mackinoff. Des is the former artistic director of Canada's Stratford Festival and the La Jolla Playhouse. He is the director of many Broadway shows, including Ain't Too Proud, Summer, Dr. Zhivago, Jesus Christ Superstar, Guys and Dolls, The Farnsworth Invention, Jersey Boys, Billy Crystal's 700 Sundays, Dracula the Musical, How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, The Who's Tommy, A Walk in the Woods, and Big River. There are probably more, forgive me. The IBDB page for Mr. Mackinoff is like the, the phone book, I would say. That's uh. the truth. Um, he's directed hundreds of plays and musicals at this point. He also has directed opera. He directed his play 700 Days for HBO and the feature film Cousin Bet starring uh, an up-and-comer, Jessica Lange. He is a founder, uh, a founding member of Dodger Theatricals, and through that organization has produced many Broadway shows, including Wrong Mountain, a play I was in and was super proud of, Great. by Sir David Herson. Um, I'm so thrilled to welcome you to the podcast. It's This is what I want to ask you or say. If your dream, growing up, or even as a young adult, was to have a life in the theater, I would say... You've done it. Oh. If you wanted to be like a race car driver, <laughs> nope. <laughs> but if this is what you wanted, you well know, done. You know, I think I backed into the theater. Um, I always had an interest. My mother was uh, involved in a, an organization called Guelph Little Theater when she was when I was growing up. And so she was uh, always nipping off to rehearsal, and it was an amateur group. Right. She played Bunny and Desk Set, for example. 
And so it was, you know, it was part of my life. And my stepfather was a, a French horn player, uh, you know, again, an amateur, but uh, he uh, had a real passion. So music and theater were always there. I, I got involved um, in the high school shows like everybody else. And I can't say I really saw a, a role uh, as a, a, an adult for myself in the theater until Hair came to town. Mm -hmm. And uh, when Hair came along, I realized that you could incorporate music that was like the music I was playing and listening to. Sure. And I auditioned. If you were, I was in a rock band. Uh, I was in several rock bands as a teenager, uh, but I was in a band at that time. And if you were the front man, if you were the singer for a band, it was expected that you would audition for hair. So most of the uh, the cast from the, the so-called Mississauga tribe, the T Toronto production, they were all people that I, you know, played side by side, you know, uh, with uh, growing up. And I was quite young. I was, I think I was only 17. So they would have been a little bit older. Right. Uh, and I didn't quite, I didn't get in. I got very close. I got to the final uh, cut. And um, there was supposed to be a second company. So I got to do a couple of workshops. And because I wrote music, I thought to myself, okay, I can do this. And, yeah. and I, you know, I'd done the traditional Broadway shows like Annie Get Your Gun and that sort of thing. You mean when you were in school? And when I was in school. Yeah. I played Charlie Davenport. I got to sing. There's no business like show business. And and uh, by the but way, I that sh that, so that song has lasted. It's, it certainly has. <laughs> it, remains. it certainly has. It, re it remains a classic. Yeah. But it was always I, I thought of that more as kind of my parents' music. Uh huh. And uh, so I wrote uh, a, a musical called Urbania, and I told my a friend who was the head of the theater department at the high school. I went to a huge high school. There okay. were 2,300 students. In Toronto. And in, in, yeah, in a suburb of Toronto called Scarborough. And I said, I'm going to write a musical. And instead of doing MAME, which is what they expected to do that right. year, would you consider doing this show if I write it? And he, of course, said, yeah, yeah, right, you're going to write a musical. And I showed up at the beginning of September with a full script and 25 songs and and lo and behold, the my the my it was rather controversial. There was a gay character. It was about uh, a, a kind of liberation front. It was the time of Vietnam, and uh, it took place in a dome city. And you know, it was it was a little bit out there, but they really responded with great enthusiasm. And the school produced it, and it got a lot of attention oh because God. I was so young. And uh, I directed it with with my teacher. And so I, I I woke up after that discovering that I was in the theater, uh, and that was very important. But it was it was more important. I, I wrote a second show, and uh, I was over at my girlfriend's house at the time, and her mother mentioned Harold Pinter to me, and I said, "Who's Harold Pinter?" Right, and she said, "Des, you can't call yourself." A playwright mm -hmm. if you don't know who Harold Pinter is right and so I went right to the library and I was you know uh, for the in the you know first kind of educated by the books of Walter Kerr the great critic mm -hmm. and I read every one of his reviews I read every book he'd had he'd 
published and started to educate myself. And so I kind of, uh, you know, uh, entered sideways. Right. And then later went to drama school and so on. But I, I didn't grow up, you know necessarily dreaming of being a director and I was a playwright and composer before I started right. directing. So hair for you was sort of what rent is for most of the musical theater stars. Yes. You know, Karen Oliva was just sitting there and and Lily Cooper and Sarah Styles and and everyone in your cast and on and on and on and you know Andrew Rannells, everyone who is of a certain generation, sort right. of speaks to rent as this kind of gateway drug right. into an understanding of what musical theater could be, right. different from previous generations. And and people forget that Hair, although there have been revivals, obviously, right. mm-hmm. um, was really like the beginning. And mm-hmm. and then you directed Tommy, obviously, which we'll get to, which was which was bringing you know rock opera to a whole new thing, which was taken. I mean, Peter Townsend and The Who, this is a whole other level of sort of reimagining what a musical could be. Um, First of all, just to go back, the idea that at 17 or however old you were, you wrote Urbania, uh, a great title. It's been stolen from you many times Uh. since. Um, Finished and completed an entire thing which is very different than writing like a song with the band that you're, you know, Mm -hmm. front man for. Like, by the way, congratulations on that. Just uh-huh. finishing anything. We know. You know what it is. So that, like, you finished something. It had a beginning, middle, and end. It was impactful. Um, at such a young age, it just really points to kind of uh, a certain kind of discipline and work ethic that clearly you had, even before you knew this was going to be your life's passion, to have an idea and to see it through to the end. And then the gumption to kind of go in and, like, and the the confidence an ego as well as the vulnerability of an artist to, like, ask people to make the thing. Like, that's extraordinary, just that moment in time. And when you think about the impact of that all of these years later, um, I feel like when I talk to people who've worked with you, that has remained a part of what you bring to a room, an enthusiasm for making something new and the discipline and the passion to see it through and to um, infect other people with that kind of enthusiasm. Something about this has kept you interested for decades. The, I, I think that's true. And it was, a, it was a, you know, it was the beginning of a, a journey that I didn't really expect to go on. Right. But it led to many uh, different things. I, I had, uh, I'd been to Stratford, which for the, the, those people that don't know, it, it's, it really is the largest, you know, a theater institution, maybe the largest performing arts institution in North America. You know, it has 120 actors mm-hmm. in the company, and it works in rep on a very large scale, 1,800-seat theater. And uh, uh, we open six shows in a week. They yeah. all rehearse simultaneously yeah. and cross-casting, and you have primary and secondary rehearsals. So I, I had been exposed to that. I had... Um, uh, a relative who was who had designed uh, the uh, you know the logo and was a, a 
brilliant artist and and so like a, a graphic designer for them. Graphic designer. Yeah. He was a serious painter. He was also a composer, and he was very close to Tyrone Guthrie. But I didn't visit there a lot. It was mm-hmm. expensive, and it was a long way away from home. So somehow all of these influences got cobbled together yeah. from doing. You know the pajama game, uh-huh. and and you know going to Stratford and seeing Merry Wives of Windsor, and uh, you know and and then hair and playing you know electric guitar and composing music. It all seemed to um, just come together in this wonderful alternative theater scene in Toronto. So by the time I was, I guess, twenty, I was you know. In working in the professional theater, getting commissioned to compose scores, writing plays, and then finally I directed uh, a, a Euripides play, and I directed the tragical history of Doctor Faustus by Christopher Marlowe. And that was all between twenty and twenty-three. So by the time I arrived in New York at twenty-three, I had you know a body of work. And, of course, when you have opportunities like that, it does conjure up strong feelings. And that was my life. You know, I woke up in the morning and I went to work and I worked until the wee hours of the morn. And From um, the very beginning. From the very beginning. Did yeah. you go to university or did you just start working? I went to Ryerson University in Toronto, which has arguably the best drama program uh, in Canada. There's also the National Theatre School in Mm -hmm. Montreal, which is also very strong as well. But I went to Ryerson when it was brand new, and they were uh, wonderfully supportive. They knew that I was writing, and they didn't have a a program for playwrights, but they said that they intended to to start one, one, and that that perhaps by the time I I got to my fourth year, they would be ready to do that. And they accepted me both as a design student, they had basically the two programs, design and acting, and as an acting student, and I I concentrated on on acting, and started writing. I was getting, I in fact got a commission, I got a couple of commissions that first year from from Toronto Theatres. And my teachers, when they read the play, yeah. instead of saying, this is a distraction, you need to concentrate on Stanislavski in acting class, they just bent over backwards to support me. We produced one of the plays, actually in the scene shop, kind of on the slide. Cool. They yeah. all came and gave us a lot of, uh, you know, just just love and support. And my main teacher, who's a woman named Basia Hunter, a brilliant, brilliant woman, uh, who had studied with Michael Chekhov and uh, and and uh, with Uspenskaya, and she was, you know, the real deal. Yeah. She, when she read uh, some of my writing, she said, you can have my summer cottage. You go there, and I had these deadlines, and she said, just, you take the summer cottage for the summer, and just, that that's your home to write, well... And uh, so, so that that was that was it was great to to have those folks kind of on my team, and uh, and you know I suppose they spoiled me in a way, uh, and perhaps you know when you when you have uh, again that kind of good fortune, uh, you know maybe it leads to expectations, and you try to maintain that. And right. I also really try to provide that for others. So yeah. I try to provide. A safe environment, and uh, if I see that someone's talented, I try to give them 
the kind of support that I enjoyed. So somebody uh, somebody suggested, I guess, uh, that you come to New York. Did you as a family come to New York and see theater when you were growing up? Did you have family here? Like, Never, no. <laughs> for, for people who are not New Yorkers, it is a huge thing to come here. Right. We, we take that for granted if we grew up even on the East Coast, let alone in, in, in close proximity to, to Times Square and Broadway. So when you came to New York, literally, like, where do you go? What do you do? How do you have a place to live? How do you understand how to negotiate sure. this new chapter in your life? A couple of things happened. One is I wrote, I composed the music, uh, again, when I was about 22, to a Mike Ondaatje book, which is a, an extraordinary book, by the way, called The Collected Works of Billy the Kid. Okay. And there's a theatrical version of it. And I was, uh, one of the theaters I worked at was called Toronto Free Theater. It's still very much there. Uh, and it transformed into a different organization now. But And that got picked up and done several other places. And one of the places it, it was uh, uh, performed was uh, at, at the F Folger Shakespeare Theater in Washington. So on the way down, I came to New York, and uh, there were a lot of Canadians. But the dance world was, of course, you know, booming in the 70s. And I stayed with some dancer friends at a place we called the Howard Street Hotel, which was a loft with no air conditioning. Where's Howard Street? It's right north of Canal between okay. Lafayette. Yeah, and it was a street at that time that, by the way, cab drivers didn't use. There's, there's no such street as Howard right? Street because it was just you know sweatshops and is it the still others. there? Oh, very much so. Okay, yeah. and uh, so I spent time here on my way to Washington, where. A director named uh, Louis Sheeter was doing Billy the Kid, and and um, when I was here, I'd been here once on a school trip in high school, and that was it. But been to New York, and um, I stopped by New York, and I thought, you know, I, I saw work every night, of course, saw plays, and and thought, you know, this is really not that different than the work we're doing in Toronto. You know, the, it was a very evolved theater scene. Toronto had a lot of there was a lot of government support for the arts in the late 60s and early 70s. And so the the life theater and the arts in general just mushroomed because of that support. And a friend of mine basically said to me when I got home, he said, you got to get out of Dodge. And he had lived in New York uh, uh, and uh, actually wrote a book. His name was, uh, was Peter Joban, wrote a book about that, the alternate alternative uh, theater scene in Toronto, a theater called Pass Marai. He wrote a book about this. And he essentially packed my bags. He mm -hmm. just said, you have to go to New York. I knew I'd been, I was writing for television, too, for the of CBC. Of course you were. Of course you were. And that was not uncommon, I want to point out. It was really? The, yeah. Because this all seems really uncommon to me I so mean, far. In those days, you know, the, the, the older people in the scene were probably in their early 30s. So I was definitely young, mm -hmm. uh, 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 you know, compared to, to others. But there were many people that were, you know, actively pursuing careers, uh, in the theater. And the head of CBC television was a fellow named John Hirsch, who was truly a remarkable man. He essen essentially lived the story of the painted bird. You know, he'd, he'd, uh, he, he, he basically came to Canada out of a refugee camp, mm. and he was Hungarian. And, and he happened to like 
a, a particular piece that I'd written, which was called Kids, and had sort of championed it at, at CBC. It was a commission. And he, um, so I met him the day I was moving to New York. And when he and and he started telling me about New York, mm-hmm. and, you know, the Chelsea Theater Center. He still had a bit of a dialect, and he was a big praying mantis of a of a character. And I didn't know the Chelsea. You don't know the Chelsea Theater Center. You must. By the time I got to New York, and I had an agent in Toronto who set up some meetings, the people I met with, including Michael David, who is still my partner uh-huh. at the Dodgers, they'd already received phone calls from John. Wow. He got back to his office and called, you know, friends. And I didn't even know he was doing wow. this. And uh, so I got a job at the Chelsea Theater Center just a few weeks after I arrived. And um, What were you doing? I directed a, a, a piece called uh, The Crazy Locomotive by a, a, a rather a, a obscure Polish playwright named Stanisław Witkiewicz. It probably had a budget that was 10 times the size of anything I would have had in right. Toronto. Now, the Chelsea Theater isn't something that people know of now. Has it turned into something else? Does it not exist anymore? What is it? It, it, it really doesn't exist. If the organization's there at all, it's completely transformed. Okay. And the Dodgers grew out of the Chelsea. So, okay. so that, that But it was at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. Okay. And it was a wonderful theater. It's where Candide was originated and Slave Ship and ACDC was produced there. It was a a fantastic. uh, So you go there and when you say so, so Michael David, who's who also still runs the Dodgers, Mm -hmm. uh, Dodger theatricals, um, you when you say it came out of there, were you all was he acting at the time? Michael? Michael no, Stiller, no, he, he, he was, was producing? He was, he was the executive director, and uh, there was a, a, a Bob Calfin was the artistic director. And I be, they first met with me, Bob and Michael talked to me as a composer for this piece. Okay. And I read the play and became enthusiastic and pitched a kind of, you know, a directorial, you know, I'll, I'll use the term loosely, vision for okay. the play. And they got excited, and they okay. gave me the job, and I was 23. And simultaneously, I wrote a play with the obscure, obscure title of Leave It to Beaver is Dead, okay. which had been produced in Toronto and, and actually a couple of times. And I A musical sub- or a play? No, play. A play. Very, rather heavy-duty play, uh, or dark play, mm-hmm. dark and somewhat violent, in fact. And I submitted that through a... a, a fellow named Jeff Weiss who was kind of an I know Jeff I used to do his soap opera at Naked Angels this late night soap called Hot Keys is that right yeah he was just yeah I remember when all of his pieces were basically called coming attractions you'd get these fragments of plays but genius just a genius genius. he read my play and sent it over to the public theater and Ed Bolins was running the kind of new play program and Ed was the uh, wonderful writer, and and was also the minister of culture for the Black Panther Party. He, you know, previously he had that role. And I came to meet with him after he read the play, and he said, "This isn't for here. This isn't for the new play. This needs to go to the to you know to the big office." And walked me across to introduce me to Gail Merrifield and and. Uh, Gail Merrifield and uh, Lynn Holst, and who ran that program, and Joe Papp uh, did a reading of it and produced it. So that all happened in the first 
few months of arriving in New York. So, and so again, I was extremely lucky. When you say Joe Papp, now you might as well say Bill Gates, right? right. Like in terms of how everyone knows the, the legacy mm-hmm. of Joe Papp. When you are meeting him at that time, is he already the Joe Pap that I imagine in my head? Or, like, it's earlier in the public theaters. This would have been uh, the set late 70s. So a chorus line had happened. Okay. He, he was He is already, already who we know him to be. I, I, from the time I was in Canada, you know, I followed all of the, the opening openings of the David Ray plays and everything okay. that Joe was you know, doing. And uh, so, uh, yeah, he, he was uh, he was an intimidating force, no In question. What, so what what are your early memories of, of Joe Papp? Well, I think one of the reasons that I uh, managed to get close to Joe is that he loved writers. Mm-hmm. I think he was more suspicious of directors than writers. And maybe because he was quite a, an accomplished director himself. But because I sort of entered the fold as a playwright, Mm -hmm. he always had this fatherly, um, you know, kind of attitude about me. And they adopted me. I would, I would, uh, when I was in rehearsal there, I did several shows there. Um, You know, I would, uh, he always had great coffee, Sabar's coffee, and much better than the coffee the stage managers made. So I would always go into the office and get a cup of coffee. And I did... Uh, have the ability to get in to see him when I needed him, and uh, and I think he had affection for me because he was able to help me as a writer. You know, he was a great dramaturg. And then I I did a a, a piece with Roberta Maxwell, uh-huh. a, a black comedy version of of Mary Stewart, which we did as the Dodgers at the public. He supported so our group. You're creating a producing entity called the Dodgers. Mm-hmm. And he adopted at, us. And and why is it called the Dodgers? We were at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. The theater was splitting with the Chelsea. The National Endowment and the New York State Council said they would recognize the split and would fund us, but we needed to come up with a name. Okay. And there were several of us. There were four of us, basically. And... Um, we had a week to come up with a name for the grant application. And we were in, of course, Brooklyn. And uh, my girlfriend at the time, uh, uh, Wendell Meldrum, we uh, brainstormed together uh, one night and came up with a Dodger Theater. Mm-hmm. As, and the other guys I went in with the next day, they all hated it. They Great. just hated it. And But we only had a week. And they couldn't come w- w- come up with anything that they liked more. Right. And so we had to submit, you know. And once we submitted the application, yes. of course, we were that was the, the you name were of the, do- theater. the Dodgers. And it still survives, and yes. it's gone on to obviously to they. You know, we've had great success as a as as a group over the years, and also had some notable failures too. Uh, so that's how it was born. And we were at the Brooklyn Academy, but they were starting a new company a classical company under a wonderful director named David Jones. And uh, we were moment, kind of homeless for a while. This is before uh, the, we kind of moved into the commercial theater. And so Joe gave us a home. and Meaning an office. A, a, a producing home. Produced our plays. Oh, okay. So we did some work. I did a thing called Viola Sunfing, which means how it all began there. And, and are you all doing... Stewart. 
they're, different they're like, things, or, or are you the only one directing and they're just producing, your partners at the time? Yeah, they, they were pr- the active producers. We all called ourselves associate directors okay. to, to uh, perhaps to escape from the tyranny of the artistic director. But I was that was sort of my function. Michael was executive director. A guy named Sherman Warner uh, did the, the uh, was uh, really a, in, in charge of production, and our colleague Ed Strong uh, was also involved in the business end of it. And that enabled them. They had such muscle, uh, intellectual muscle, that they were able to move into the commercial theater. The re- way I started with Shakespeare's opening night of this Mary Stewart. Uh, I got the complete works of William Shakespeare from uh, Joe Papp as an opening night present. And my friend Sherman said, well, you know what that means? And I said, I have no idea. And I'm very flattered. It's a substantial, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. I have it to this day. And he said, it means Joe's going to ask you to do Shakespeare in the park. Uh And I said, I don't really think so. I've never done Shakespeare. And I'd done the one Marlowe play. And I got a call the next morning and he said... I want you to do Shakespeare in the Park. What would you like to direct? And uh, I went back, of course, as we do with these things, to the first Shakespeare play I'd really studied, which was the first part of Henry IV, and said, well, you know, you haven't done Henry IV for a long time. I'd like to do that. And he said, okay. And there you have it. Yeah, and I remember saying to him, you know, Joe, I've, I've actually never directed Shakespeare before. And he said, everybody that's that's doing it at one time or another right. had never directed it before. Right, but not everyone gets to start on that stage. That's true. So and I he got, really you know, believed in you. He did believe in me, and 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 I'm I'm proud to say I I don't think I didn't let him down. He was mm-hmm. very very fond of that. Who production. was in that production? Mandy Patinkin, John Vickery played Hal. Um, you know, uh, Peggy Whitten played uh, Lady uh, Hotspur. Susan Berman played Lady Percy. Kenneth McMillan, the wonderful, wonderful actor. If you've anyone seen the film of Ragtime, he plays the uh-huh. fire chief. He uh-huh. was just a st- astonishing actor and uh, that I worshipped. He'd, he'd done streamers for Mike Nichols and... Uh, and American Buffalo, the David Mamet play, he'd, he'd done that on Broadway. So he was he was a, a Falstaff, and it was. And I also had some wonderful young actors in that: Kevin Spacey, Val Kilmer, Linda Kozlowski. I'd been teaching at Juilliard. Okay, what? And so they <laughs> buried the lead. <laughs> so they, somehow they were you my, were, were also teaching at Juilliard. I started teaching at Juilliard in uh, yeah, and I was. I was not much older than the students. I think I was about 27 or 26. So, Have yeah. you written a biography? I, I have not, and, and I think it's very unlikely to happen because I think I would, I would, be, uh, I would be asleep after the first chapter. Well, I'm glad but, I have you here. Yeah. If you're not writing a biography, um, you understand that this is um, – it's really hard to imagine. Maybe a movie would be great so we could really visualize how you are – in all these different places at once, but happen to be at the center of what remains for the theater community, um, the home basis of sort of all things that turn into uh, the, the theater we go to see, the people, the creators, the writers. Are there things that, um, I don't want to get stuck in like 1978, because no, we've got some more to go. Right. But are there things, just to stay with Joe Papp for one more second, because most of us, my age, just know about him from reading his the book 
um, or hearing stories. It's like, you know, uh, he's the thing that dreams are made of. He was a dream maker. His legacy lives on. Um, are there things that he said to you or that you observe that are still not not only like great coffee, which tells us so much right. already <laughs> about the things he cared about, but anything that he said to you about even directing that kind of is still something you do when you go into a rehearsal room to this day? You know, he, he managed to demystify the language and uh it, it's 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 of shakespeare again, or know, the creative process of both mm-hmm. you know he he was he made shakespeare accessible he he didn't see it as some sort of lofty high art pursuit you know he understood that shakespeare was a working actor mm-hmm. and you know if you go back to the elizabethan jacobean age you have a hundred thousand, hundred and fifty thousand people in, living in London. You have eight to ten theaters that see two thousand people, and on any given afternoon in March, when it's really cold, yeah. because it was a very cold period, you have maybe ten, fifteen, twenty percent of the population of London going to the theater, mm-hmm. and it was much closer to hip-hop or rock and roll than, you know, it was, it was for the people. And he really understood that. So and the he language that. that we may find very difficult if we're not scholars or even like anyone with a great teacher mm-hmm. kind of guiding you through Shakespeare, you're, what you're saying is that in its day, Shakespeare was completely accessible to non-scholars. It's completely accessible today. And the thing about that language is that it's meant to be spoken. It's not meant to be read. Mm -hmm. And it's not dialogue. Mm -hmm. It's thought. And it may be the greatest record of human thought in existence. It's thought. And he certainly, uh, you know, understood that. I, I... went out to start La Jolla in, uh, when I was still quite young, I was about 30, and uh, Joe, uh, bless him, came out to support me. And Joe didn't like to travel at all. Mm-hmm. He, never, he didn't leave New York. And he came out to sort of, I guess, bless this new institution that we were starting. And uh, we did a production of Romeo and Juliet, which which he... Uh, you know, and he was he was just fantastically supportive guy and uh, wonderful wonderful man and tough as nails. Mm-hmm. You didn't want to mess with him, that's for sure. Why? What would happen? Uh, you know, he didn't. It, it, he would raise an eyebrow. That's all he <laughs> that's had to all do. He, had to do. he would very quietly scare the crap out of people. Right, but since you're talking about this yeah. Shakespeare thing, you know, it's funny. I, I uh, we did this production of Romeo and Juliet with Amanda Plummer playing Juliet, and mm-hmm. and who's a, a brilliant actress and um, and was a breathtaking Juliet. And uh, I remember a, a, a high school student, the teacher told me this, they were doing The Dream, they were doing Midsummer Night's Dream, and she said, can't we translate this play into modern language the way La Jolla Playhouse did? Uh-huh. And we hadn't changed a word. Right. And it's simply because the actors understood, you know, what they were saying. And Joe also understood and taught me this, the relationship between contemporary plays and classical plays, and that the healthiest theaters do both. Okay. So you, you, you have to have playwrights 
or you you forget that Shakespeare walked the earth. Right. You know, it becomes the the theater becomes dead or stillborn, and so he didn't believe it was a contradiction to embrace new work and to do classics and of course that tradition lives on at the public today under Oscar Absolutely, Eustace. absolutely. So so at some point you say yes to being an artistic director of your own theater mm-hmm. after doing a lot in New York very quickly. You're teaching at Juilliard. I'm just gonna recap. <laughs> you're you're writing plays. You are part of the Chelsea Theater. You start your own producing theater company that Mm -hmm. still is up there today producing some of the greatest Broadway shows. It's with Ju Jamson and the Schuberts and these huge uh, producing entities. Um, You start doing plays at the Delacorte. You were already on your way when you got here to have your play done at the Folger. We haven't even talked about that. That's what like brought you here Bef- and to live on Howard Street in the loft with the dancers and the whole right. thing. Then you uh, you find yourself being invited to be an artistic director as a Canadian of your own theater here mm-hmm. in America, in beautiful La Jolla. Right. So again, just in terms of the craziness of the luck, like not in, um, I don't know, freezing Michigan, which is a beautiful state, but like, no, in La Jolla, like the most beautiful place in the world. I dated a, a playwright named Alan Havis sure. many years ago. Um, and and uh, whose name I truly haven't thought of <laughs> since <laughs> I'm sitting here with you, although somewhere there's beautiful artwork. He, he would do these drawing, these figures, these beautiful paintings. I don't know where they are. And we would just drive around on his motorcycle. Um, and so we would go to La Jolla. And it's truly like one of the most beautiful places on earth. So um, I didn't really know what I was getting into. Or how long you would be there for or what right. it would end up meaning for your life. Yeah, and, and but I, it was the best, you know, decision I've ever made. And I, I consider my creative contribution to La Jolla Playhouse to be my greatest achievement. Mm-hmm. And, and, and uh, you know, came to understand that institution actually means permanence, not bureaucracy. Right. And that's what it's become. It's right. become a permanent uh, you know, forum for the art. So that was a, a very good decision. The the thing about the hits and, and I think Chris was telling me I think we've actually sent 35 plays to Broadway now. It's something some right. ridiculous and, number. And I would I would venture to guess more than any other regional theater. Yeah, I don't think there's any question of that. And um, y- you know, but it wasn't so much a plan. You know, at that time, musicals were becoming more expensive, and it was clear to us that you had to bond together the the people that were interested in in musicals from the commercial theater and the not for profit. That there had right. to be some sort of marriage, healthy marriage between those forces, and that started with Big River. Mm-hmm. And and I don't know. If, I'm sure others had probably done it, but we found this way. You know, James Lapine and Stephen Sondheim came to do a new version of Merrily We Roll Along, uh, you know, and this started, you know, this kind of uh, tradition. And it became a, a, a sort of a perfect circle and it's something like but Come From Away. Or May I ask you mm-hmm. about that? Because, sure. I mean, maybe you already knew many of these people from your kind of short time in retrospect in New York, but 
James Lapine and Stephen Sondheim uh, weren't going out to many theaters. They didn't have to leave New York. That's uh, true. Very early on, and already when you got here, they were this dynamic duo. Yeah. Um, but they came to your theater to do that. Did you already have relationships with them? Did the, so How does that happen? When I was at the public theater uh, a, f- a few years before that, uh, working for Joe Papp, um, James was also uh, directing there, and he was a real favorite director of mine. I just love his work. I, I love him. He's a, a, a brilliant guy with a mm-hmm. wicked sense of humor. And he comes from... The visual arts, you know, he was he was he was a an artist, a visual artist before he became a director. So I love the 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 magic he creates on mm-hmm. stage visually. Yeah, yeah. And he would be in rehearsal in another room, you know, in one of the five or six theaters at the public. And we had this little tradition where uh, at one point he sent me a Heineken, or I sent one to him. I yeah. forgot how it started, but. And then from time to time, this Heineken would appear on my desk, and I knew it was I wish I had known. I wish I had known. No, no, those days are long gone. There you go. The glass says Heineken, people. I intuited. That is so good. Yeah, there you go. And and, uh, so, you know, we've become friends. And, uh, you know, I I think that's the way it generally works, you know, as you know, it's it's a social thing, theater, and it, it it tends to be a group of 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 friends that come together. Mm-hmm. The one thing I always say to young artists is, you know, you get asked for advice. Well, advice is cheap, and I'm I'm very stingy with it because I think it can be so dangerous. Right. But the one thing I always say is, find your people. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't do it alone. So if you're a playwright, you need actors, and find your people. Right. And so I guess I'd found my people. I think there's a danger in that, which is that you don't want to become exclusive. You don't want to become an organization just for insiders. And that's why I always believe in a rigorous, you know, audition process. And and, and I try to read, you know, plays when they come along, certainly right. if they recommend it. But on the other hand, you, you have to turn to the people you trust and that you love and that you... you, you love know, working with. Yeah, and they, whose work you admire. And so... Uh, and and they were all very different, and and I, I promise not to drone on about this because I don't do very, uh, I don't do so- sound bites very well. And you are a fantastic listener, I've got to say, you Thank are you. fantastic. Uh, the way you could just piece together all those disparate things I was talking about. Um, but you know that we did the Chekhov's The Seagull a few years in, and uh, this was really pointed out to me more than anything, but. The Seagull is a play that that is about many things, and it's it may be the first truly modern play, certainly one of them, and uh, a, 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 a very very important play in terms of I think twentieth century theater. But it's it's at its foundation, it's about an art scene, and all of the characters in it have had their souls shaped by a different often contradictory genre. Right. And they all fall in love with each other. Right. But they don't speak the same language. Right. You know, uh, uh, you know they, and they all come from very specific uh, 
movements in art. You know, Constantine is a symbolist and so on. And, you know, Arcadna does a particular kind of melodrama that came from the 1890s, and Masha is a nihilist, and, and you know, Nina Zarechnaya wants to do tragedy, and so she actually enters into a popular short story to, to, to experience tragedy so she can act it and so on. And somebody said to me, you know, this is a microcosm for uh, an art scene, and that's what the Playhouse is. Mm -hmm. It's all of these different genres coming together. And that was something that we had to discover. It was like we'd been producing this work, and then you kind of did this play and went, oh, my God, that that represents what we're trying to do. Here's our mission statement. Here's our mission statement. It's in this production. And um, and that was a, a really uh, joyous uh, period, and and uh, we learned, I think, with the musicals, we took on enhancement funds is the magic term from commercial producers, but right. we also controlled the production entirely when it was in our halls. Right. So we didn't allow others to come in and boss us. Well, let me ask you about that because m- most artists. Um, do not have to deal with uh, being an artistic director. It's a funny title because I know just having friends who've who've done variations on a theme of what you do. There is um, there are a lot of board members. There are a lot of people with opinions. Yes. There are people who give a lot of money to right. the theater and mm-hmm. expect in return uh, to be appreciated when they have right. thoughts to share. So, how did you learn? There, it, it is a bit of a political job. You have a lot of people to make happy. It's your vision. You have a lot of people who want to make you happy right. also. Um, Not so many. Well, yes. <laughs> well, or certainly want to be in your good favor. Yeah, um, I, I think that's – I hope that's true. Yeah, yeah, for all sorts of reasons uh, because you created a place where beautiful work can happen and, and actors and artists are, and, and directors and writers, everyone's supported. Uh, being a producer is giving everyone the opportunity to be their best. Sure. And an artistic director has the vision but also is a major producer right, of all these absolutely. things. So how did you handle um, – wh- when you talked about Pap, he was like everybody feared him. Right. What a great persona to have. It would make people scared to come into your office mm-hmm. and give you opinions. Um, how did you handle that, suddenly being in a situation where you kind of had to be nice to a lot of people, whether or not you particularly respected their opinions? How did you negotiate being that person? Well, you know, I, I had a lot of uh, uh, really enlightened uh, board members. and So uh, you were fortunate in that and, way. And completely. And, yeah. of course, I went into it. Knowing that, I got to know them mm-hmm. uh, right away, and I got to know what the ground rules were going in. So there were things to watch out for. You know, you have to have artistic um, uh, decision making control. You can't have an artistic, you know, committee made up of volunteers telling you what plays to right. do. Uh, they're going to tell you anyway, but you have to make it really clear that they have the right to hire you and to fire you, and they have the right to approve a budget. But not curate your season. But they don't have the right to tell you the plays to do or Mm -hmm. the actors to hire anything else. That's, That's, you know, once they've hired you, that's your domain. And by and large, people were really terrific. 
We had a terrible financial design, which happily has been corrected over okay. the years. So a lot of the biggest challenges were getting up at six in the morning. He, he, for example, would always insist at meeting at seven a.m., which for a theater Does artist. Does he not understand? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, uh, I just got to bed. I just got yeah, to bed. Yeah, in fact, I will not go to <laughs> bed. Go, go to I'll bed go after. Yeah. And and so, uh, but you know, so a lot of our challenges were were just making sense. Right. We only had a certain amount of time in the buildings. You know, we shared the space with the university. And so a lot of the real struggle was, had to do with the logistics of, of forging that relationship with the university and just making sense of what had been, was kind of a disastrous financial design. Happily, we had some great successes. And uh, I, you know, when What I was back, your chorus line? If you think of what chorus line was for the public, financially and sort of commercially and putting them on the map, beyond just New York City. What was that for La Jolla? I would, would, first of all, just very quickly, there were a couple of shows that helped us get rid of debt, and including Michael Greif when he directed Rent. He he brought Rent to the playoffs to start the national tour, which was a wonderful thing to do. And I'd had two shows that that did about more than a million dollars into the theater, and we got rid of debt. Because when you're running a theater, you don't want to carry a lot of debt because it's almost like having two operating budgets. Uh-huh. So uh, so we managed to reduce a lot of the debt during Michael's time, mm-hmm. right right after I left. And then when I returned, I got to do this little uh, this little musical called Jersey Boys. Mm. And that so became, that started at La Jolla? Mm-hmm, that became, I started that at La Jolla. And it, it became with, of course, Marshall Brickman and Rick yeah. Allison all of the other people involved in that. And it, um, you know, that 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 really became a, a, an income stream for the theater and brought in millions of dollars. And still does. And still brings in money to the playhouse and it's still running all over the place. And, and when, when, it, a, when an entity like that happens, I'm sorry, this is fascinating to me because I'm an actress. Sure. I've never uh, had any experience with this stuff. So I just love hearing the, um, the nuts and bolts of every aspect of every other job that is not acting. When you have... Uh, when you have the rights to something like Jersey Boys sure. and it becomes a film, mm-hmm. is is La Jolla a part of that? Does La Jolla you partake know, in, in the, the whatever you know, that is? Yeah, n- uh, n- not so much. Okay. And, and, um, or the Rent movie? Yeah, or yeah I, not so much. The Rent movie, in, in that case, that, that they were launching a tour. So that the, the, that would go back to the producers. It, it's really the, 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 the stage... You know, it, whatever when happens show proliferates to it. like yeah. Jersey Boys did, then then all of those plays feed back into, you know, all those productions into the mother company. Usually, the mother company gets ten percent of the profits okay. of all of their shows, and and the playhouse would share then in the in the income from the from mother the, company. From the mother company, uh, and part so, of you it. know, on in any given year, I, I'm making these numbers up because right. I don't know them exactly, but. You know, you might get a couple of million dollars coming in, right? And that, of course, goes right back into the art, right? So it's it a keeps terrific going. thing, and it's not lost on me. But when you say, you know, when you when you uh, uh, you know talk about being an actress, it, it's not lost on me that the theater first and foremost belongs to the actors. Mm. 
And you asked me about things that I learned from Joe mm-hmm. Papp, uh, the great Joseph Papp. One of the things I learned was just, again, it seems so basic, but if you went to a party, a cast party, after a show at the public theater, and you went to have a cold cut and a little bit, butter a little bit of bread, he would literally stop you. No one ate before the actors. Uh-huh. You know, he, he yeah. always understood that his, uh, forgive me, bread and butter yeah. was w- had to do with performance yes. and performances. And that the theater, you know, film belongs to all kinds of people, include these days the corporations right. and, and, and the, the suits, the marketing guys that think they're filmmakers. Uh, the theater belongs to the actors and, and always. Mm. And um, so... You know, I I think it's great that actors get themselves really involved in the all of the various machinations of producing theater. But I also think it's great when they can be free to act and just do their thing and let the rest of us kind of, you know, sweep the floors and dig the trenches. I know that you have other things to do, so I'm going to move along to just things I'm dying to know about because um, they're just so a part of your the story of. Des Mackinoff, one of them is that you worked with Pete Townsend mm-hmm. of The Who right. to create a Broadway musical version. It turned out to be a Broadway musical version of Tommy. Right. Um, that was a, a an album that had a – it was a rock opera um, that they performed. They made a movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it became a musical that Michael Cerverus, Anthony Barilli, like – so many people I've known for so long, Hillary Morse, just on and on and on. People who were babies in your show, who yeah. were my friends at the time. Sherry Renee Scott. Sherry Renee Scott. I remember when Sherry and Kurt Deutsch did Faust. Right. At your th- I mean, it, it, you know. Norm Lewis. Everybody. Michael McElroy. There really Alice wouldn't Ripley. be a it, single person who mm-hmm. acts that wouldn't have some point passed through your theater doors. Or it's some production of yours based on... Like I said, your IBDB page. So how does, you know, now it's not uncommon for for rock stars or, you know, musicians to adapt their work or create a piece for the theater. You know, Jagged Little Pill is about to sure. enter. That's, that's, a, that's a new version of what we're talking mm-hmm. about. Absolutely. But this was a literal um, adaptation, not using the songs to create something else. Right. How... How was that? <laughs> how did that happen? Well, how, how not even did how did it happen. happen. How I mean, how, you, have how a, was it to- you have a tremendous musical background, so it makes sense to me n- now in learning about you why you would be such a great person to do that project. In the Malcolm Gladwell of it all, the things that had led up to you at that point in your life and where you were in your career and the knowledge you have of music um, and your love of rock. But how do you do that? You know... That that was a uh, happenstance. Uh, Michael David, my partner, came out to visit me in La Jolla, which was very unusual. He he came out to visit me in La Jolla, and he said, "How would you like to? Would you?" And, and it was very unusual. So I knew something was up. Yeah. We sat on my balcony. I had a, a nice view, and we sat on. It was a, not necessarily the nicest apartment. If if. You know, you, it had been in Scarborough where I grew up. You wouldn't have said anything about it. People would say, what a nice apartment. i say, well, look at the apartment. Yeah. It, it, it's it was the, the view. view. It was, yeah. Okay. So we sat on the balcony drinking, uh, you know, relatively, you know, cheap 
Chardonnay or and and had a that glass does of not wine. sound like Michael David. No, no, not now. But that was this, <laughs> this early was before days. Tommy. Pre- so right. so he, you know, and and I, one of the critics had uh, from the LA Times out there had written a review, had reviewed their concert version of Tommy and said this is the greatest rock, you know, theater of all time. But nobody will ever be able to do this, you know, in the theater. This they, they can do this in concert. And mm-hmm. I just thought to myself, I read this review and I said. You're not right. Yeah. We, we could do that. We yeah. could do that. If we had the rights to do that, and the re- we could do that. And so when he said that to me, I remembered that piece and, and had taken that as a kind of challenge. Right. Went over, got to meet Pete, and we were at a big table. There were a lot of people at a having restaurant? business meetings. No, at a conference room. Okay. And he and I got about 10 minutes together. <clears throat> just whispering in the middle of this larger conversation. And Tommy was born in those 10 minutes. Wow. And I was there in London for a couple of days, and I got to spend a lot of time with the music, and then we spent a lot of time together. I had this four-hour conversation, and I remember at one point he stood up and he was showing me how he'd injured his hand and did a windmill, and I thought, this guy normally does this for 30,000 people. And he's doing it for me alone in the lobby yeah. of the Portobello Hotel. Anyway, he, that's how it, it started. And, you know, Hair, for the longest time for me, was the show, mm-hmm. the way you described Rent mm-hmm. for you know, a particular generation. So for the longest time, it was the show. But when we did Tommy, Tommy became the show. When I think of all the casts that you've worked with, past, present, and future, that I fantasize about, <laughs> um, you know, there's this kind of thing that directors say, like, cast. my genius is casting the right person, right? So many times directors deflect very humbly from praise by saying, well, by hiring Michael Cerverus or whoever sure. it is, that, my work was done or much of my work right. was done. Um, and maybe that's true, mm-hmm. uh, but no one gets anywhere alone. No, no performances like that, like what's happening in, on stage every night at Ain't Too Proud. You know, we all need help, even sure. if we have greatness inside of us. Um, and obviously you get to a certain point where you know people and can just make straight offers because you know they have an essence or a quality that really is right for the thing that you're trying to create. But you've been doing this a really long time, and there will be many people listening to this who not just love, love, love the arts, but are also performers themselves and we go into this audition room and it is really always this feeling of it being set up it's supposed to be an equal playing field we're told like go in and you're just gonna let's collaborate but it doesn't always feel like that and you don't have as you can't take as much time as you need there's 50 people's names on a list so I guess I wonder if you can share a little bit about what it is for you being on the side of the table you're on Mm -hmm. as a director, things you've learned, things that we're worrying about that are a waste of our time as the actor. I don't know. Anything that pops into your mind, it's so, it's endless. It's a whole other conversation. But but I'd love for you to share a little bit of that. Well, first of all, it's not about your, your, uh, it's not about your, the photo on your resume. And I think, I think I've I've had the great joy of of uh, well living with more than one actress uh-huh. actually to be honest being married I'm, to I'm actresses yeah so that, I guess would be true for a, a life in the theater mm-hmm. so I've I've been uh, married to two actresses and I want to say they're two of my closest friends and I I adore them both and not uh, everyone can say that 
It's true. I'm, yeah. I'm now married to a sculptor, and that's kind of, we have a, a, a sane amount of distance. But I would say a couple <laughs> things. I would say, first of all, it's important to remember that the people on the side of the table that are doing this, the hiring and the choosing, they're really just trying to cast a role. Right. And as in all things in life, if when you don't, something doesn't come your way, it's important not to you know, make it, you know, about you or about about your confidence. It's really important to remain confident and calm, hopefully, and fear is a natural element. And so if you can find a way to channel the fear, that's even better. But, but when I'm casting a, a role, all I'm trying to do is hire somebody that I know is going to be terrific in that part, even if it requires some help from mm-hmm. me, but I want, you know, uh, I want that person to succeed. And it's not about anything else. It's it's really, and what I try to do is I try to create a really good environment in that room. You're never going to find me reading mm-hmm. the sports section when somebody's auditioning. You know, I'm focused on what they're doing. You're there to, to work. I try to, and I try to be, you know, not only polite, I try to be warm. I try to make them feel calm there's there's you know there's a lot of people often on on my side of the table uh, you know there can be there can be a dozen people and so uh, but I think even when you're not in that kind of environment you should act like you are do you know I mean walk into a room and don't be distracted if people are rude or short or seem to be in a hurry Take your space and, you know, do what you do. Focus. So much about acting, as you know, is looking out. Mm -hmm. It's staying inside and looking out and using your senses. And, you know, actors are sensory magicians. So if you can transform that horrible little room on 35th Street, Mm -hmm. you know, into, you know, the palace that you're playing the scene in, then you've done half the job. And I think it's so hard, and this is true in life in general, you know, to try not to take things personally because I think that just gets in your way. Right. And uh, it is, I think, a, I, I think actors are trapped inside their own instruments, and that's the reason that I love spending my life with them because that's a fascinating artist. You can't say, Johnny, put the violin down and come and eat your soup. Right. Because the violin is them. Right. And uh, it's the pinball machine. It's the pinball machine. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I have a little yes. known fact about you, and I want you to tell me if it's true. Oh, okay, good. Is it true mm-hmm. that you do not drive? No, it is not true. It was true for many years. Okay. I didn't drive until uh, my daughter, uh, who is 29, so I've driven, until uh, we were pregnant with my daughter. Okay. And I was so panicked about not being able to maybe get my wife to the hospital. All the (laughs) cliche fantasies that, you know, fathers go through. Yes. And I had this very strange dream one night. I dreamt that she was a newborn and we were letting her drive the car to San Juan Capistrano. And all I was worried about was how she was going to get out of the car when she 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 got there because she had to stand on the seat. And right. So I had all these nightmares about driving in cars. Yes. I love uh, to drive. Okay. And, um, so you were just later to it. I was later How to it. How old were you when you got your license? Car, no. 
I was 35. Okay, so you were a very grown person. Yeah, and I, I used to rely on others, and I, I'm sure I was a huge annoyance to the people that assisted me and worked with me because right. I was always bumming rides everywhere, right. and taking taxis and... You know, and, and Okay. I'm so glad that you learned because it's a very empowering thing and driving is really fun. And I'm glad that you and, have that. And when you ask me my, for my, yeah. my secret, I, yeah. I'm going to have to now have it pertain to driving. Okay. Tell us your secret. Okay. You drive with your eyes closed. I, I, I don't <laughs> drive with my eyes closed, but I do try to concentrate on the person in the passenger seat. No, I'm, I'm joking. That is a terrible and habit. Now, I, I, yeah. I, I, I really uh, – I, I, I'm an aggressive driver when I'm alone and – uh, and there's nobody around. I'm I'm a very cautious driver. If there's anyone around, whether it's in my vehicle or somewhere right. else, but I I'm a, a, a I love Formula One racing. I've I've had the privilege of attending races in various places around the world. And then, in fact, I'm working on an opera about Ayrton Senna, who was arguably, I think, along with Lewis Han Hamilton, the, the current world champion, the great, the fastest man ever to live. Huh. So I've actually driven a Formula One car at Monza in Italy. Wow. I did 10 wow. laps. Now, what is I, that like? It's hair-raising. They're so powerful, uh, those engines, and it's so loud. And How it's fast so do you fast. think you went? I did, there's no speedometer because right. you're trying to keep the car as light as possible. But I, I would think I probably got it up to maybe 160 on, on the straightaways. There, there's some very quick uh, straightaways there. Um, and uh, it was, it was uh, very nerve-wracking. I, I, I do want to say, though, that sounds fast, but those cars will do better than 200. And I'm, you're probably looking at the slowest person to ever drive a Formula One right. car. And and the least talented. It's it's something I love. You're so and I, humble. I admire the people that can do <laughs> yes. it. But, but but you're going to do an opera around this about about yeah. It's with Michael Torkey, the wonderful American composer, series composer, and Michael Corey, the great lyra, uh, librettist. And so we've been working on this for some years. And, and will there be like driving in the show? Will there be? There will be. Uh, the Miss Saigon helicopter, the, the yeah, not not quite that literal, but but it it, it should be quite magical. That's and cool. Michael's written a beautiful score, and it's the last three days. Santa was killed, died on May first, uh, nineteen ninety four, and it's really about the last three days of his life. The the Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Don't at you Imola. love the worlds we get to deep dive into? Oh, it's just so like it's so crazy, but you will know everything. Right? You will know everything about this world and this man. And that is what just feels to me. I get to do it in like little mini classes with my guests. But the idea that you are going to get to spend all this time with this thing you love yep. and then create a piece of art out of it, which you have been doing for one million years, uh, it's just extraordinary. It's a dilettante, you know, doing what we do, it's, it's a dilettante's paradise because you can come into a subject, as you just said so eloquently, without knowing anything or much about it and anyway. And when you come through it, go through it and you pass to the other side, hopefully you've got a working knowledge yeah. of that solar system. And I think journalists get to do it Absolutely. Uh, as well, but most people don't get to do that. And, and it, it truly is uh, a, a great... Um, 
you know, a great, a great privilege. Every project is a different solar system. It's like traveling through space. That's right. Well, this podcast has given me the great privilege of sitting in this really little booth uh, with people I admire so much. And Mr. Makinoff, I have probably seen almost everything on the list that I've read and have so many people whose lives you've touched so deeply with your work and what an extraordinary career. And thank you for sharing so much of your story with me today. It was really just my true pleasure. I enjoyed every second. Hey everyone, new episodes of Little Known Facts drop every Monday and you can find them on your favorite podcast provider. Also, if you go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com, you'll find behind-the-scenes photos, videos, and interviews, and lots more on the gallery page. And if you are loving these intimate, candid conversations with all the artists who come on the show, please head over to the contributions page. I depend on these donations to continue to bring you these interviews every week. So if you love the show, please donate. Little Known Facts is edited by Nicholas Klar and recorded in New York City.